think what I'm trying to figure out is what it means to love somebody. The the scientific definition of love is to care about somebody else's welfare for its own sake, not because of how their welfare affects you or or for any other selfish reason. How does the brain do that? Right? Something in the brain allows us to register another person's fear or joy or pain or whatever as intrinsically subjectively valuable. There clearly are um, circuits within the amygdala that do that calculation. Across the world, heroes and saints rub shoulders with murderers and manipulators. On one end of the spectrum are psychopaths with no remorse, unmoved by the suffering they cause those around them. On the other are heroes who risk their lives to save complete strangers and refuse to acknowledge that they've done anything out of the ordinary. At first sight, these categories of people seem like they couldn't have less in common. But psychologist Abigail Marsh has discovered the astonishing thread that joins them. Wow, riveting. I'm reading the back cover blurb of The Fear Factor, a book written by Professor Abigail Marsh of Georgetown University, who is my Donor Diaries guest today. When we talk about living organ donation, particularly when we talk about people who donate organs to a stranger, many people might ask, well, Why are some people so completely motivated to do such a thing, while most people just aren't wired to? Professor Marsh has spent over a decade answering this question through studies on things like altruism, empathy, and the depths of human nature. Professor Marsh has scanned and studied the brains of several Donor Diaries guests and a few of my friends, and I'm so excited to have her as a guest today to explain just what's happening between their ears and to enlighten us about the human emotion that connects altruists, psychopaths, and everyone in between. Welcome, Professor Marsh. Thank you so much for having me today, and uh, please do call me Abby. Great. Thanks, Abby. So, Abby, what led you into the field of studying altruism? Well, I certainly, it was partly because I became interested in psychology as an undergraduate, thanks to some fantastic professors I had. But my specific interest in altruism, uh, I'm sure traces back, at least in part, to uh, having been the beneficiary of altruism myself. When I was 19, I was rescued by a stranger after a car accident um, and trying to understand why somebody would have taken the risks that he did to save the life of a stranger really uh, became a puzzle I found myself wanting to solve. That's amazing. Um, I mentioned in my intro that you studied the brain scans of non-directed donors. Going into the study, what were you expecting to find about donor brains? Well, I had had the good fortune um, as a postdoctoral researcher at the National Institute of Health to spend several years studying the brains of people who were psychopathic. So who, um, if you think about empathy and compassion as a continuum, which I do, are at the very low end of that continuum. And my interest is in understanding the origins of empathy and compassion and um, studying people who are missing the thing you're interested in is a really standard clinical approach to research. So if you want to understand memory, 
uh, a good way to understand the memories uh, or the, the things that cause people to remember or not remember things is to study people with amnesia. So studying people without a lot of empathy is a really good way to understand the origins of empathy. And so after working with people who have psychopathic personality traits for a while, again, mostly children and adolescents, we discovered a couple features of these populations that are pretty reliable. Uh, one, they seem really uh, unusually insensitive to others' distress, in particular fear. Um, and this seems to be at least in part due to empathic deficits. Um, people who are psychopathic tend to have pretty fearless personalities themselves. And so we think they actually just have trouble understanding the state of fear in others when they see it. So they don't recognize it well. They don't respond to it emotionally. And these deficits seem to be traceable to developmental problems and a brain structure called the amygdala. And in people who have psychopathic traits, the amygdala tends to be smaller than average and uh, underreactive to different kinds of emotional cues, in particular, others' fear. And so again, thinking about empathy and compassion as a continuum, I thought, well, it stands to reason that if people who have very little empathy and compassion are very insensitive to others' distress, in particular, their fear, uh, and that seems to be due to amygdalas that are small and underreactive. Maybe at the other end of this continuum, you would find people who are unusually compassionate, unusually willing to help others instead of hurt them. And they might be characterized by unusually high sensitivity to other people's distress. And that might be accompanied by amygdalas that are larger and more reactive than usual. I mean, looking back, it, it seems in some way like a, a, somewhat of an audacious. Um, set of questions. So you studied psychopaths first. So were you thinking, okay, who's the opposite of a psychopath? And did you have a few different groups in mind? Or did you just go straight to, to people who donated organs to strangers? Well, I did because of my own experience. One of the things I thought of was um, finding people who would rescue strangers, um, just the way I had been rescued. But at the time, I had absolutely no idea how to find those people. I mean, you you can't cold call people based on, you know, newspaper stories about rescues. That's considered a no-no ethically uh, when you're a, a university researcher. And um, so, but I thought a lot about what are other ways that people can help others, strangers in particular, at a significant risk or cost to themselves that are also meaningful forms of altruism. And what's great is that there's lots of ways to be altruistic. It's not like there's just one most important or one true manifestation of altruism. What got me thinking about altruistic kidney donors was that it had recently become a thing people could do. And I think um, it was new enough at the time, this would have been back in about 2009, that there were only maybe a handful, maybe a couple dozen people donating per year. Many people were unaware that this was something it was possible to do. Many transplant centers still didn't allow it. So it seemed like a particularly interesting manifestation of altruism to me, because in some ways, whereas a heroic rescuer has to make a decision instantaneously to help. So that's one really interesting sort of form of altruism, right? You don't have any chance to think about it at all. You just have to decide for the most part. Um, altruistic kidney donation is interesting because at the time, I had no idea how the decisions to donate kidneys get made, but I did know that you had lots of opportunities to change your mind along the way. For whatever reason, people who do go on to donate kidneys, even though they have plenty of opportunities to to think again or to change their mind, they don't. Um, I thought that really seemed like a, a really interesting feature of altruistic kidney donation. And so 
uh, for many reasons. It was new. It was interesting. People had a lot of questions about it. Um, I had a lot of questions about it. It seemed like, oh, and there were a few national organizations that um, I was able to reach out to and some local ones uh, to help me recruit uh, donors. And so for all of those reasons, it ended up being the perfect choice. And for reasons I didn't anticipate, it also ended up being the perfect choice. What conclusions came out of this study? Well, I mean, astonishingly, we did find that altruistic kidney donors have uh, antipsychopathic brains. They um, they are more sensitive to others' distress. They are they have amygdalas that are larger than average by about eight percent in our studies. Although I, I think that's just an estimate because we have small samples, and um, and then their amygdalas are more reactive to others' distress, especially fear. Uh, although in, in more recent studies, we've shown that's true for pain as well. We think of altruism as a response to other people's distress. And so it would make sense that people who are unusually altruistic are unusually sensitive to the kinds of cues that usually elicit altruism. It all fits together actually pretty neatly. So why are some people's amygdalas bigger than somebody else's? Is it an abnormality for it to be bigger or smaller? Well, um, I would never call it that. Uh, I know that other people have. I think there are some really... Uh, incredible articles and books written about extraordinary altruists. I call kidney donors extraordinary altruists, but I know there have been journal articles out there with titles like lunatic or saint. It's <laughs> 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 like, really? You go either way. <laughs> Are these the only two choices we have? Um, and, um, and in fact, interestingly, my publisher's preferred title for my book was actually saints and psychopaths. And I know it's a catchy title and it probably would have been an advantageous title and I don't know, in terms of sales or something, but I just couldn't do it. I, I was like, I cannot call altruistic kidney donors saints. It's just wrong. <laughs> and it's it literally is the well, opposite. Of the I agree. And it, and it also puts us on a pedestal. And then people who don't identify as a saint say, well, that's somebody who's doing something that I can't because I'm not a saint. Exactly. Right. And altruists would be the very, every single altruist I've ever met would, would, would ardently say, I am not a saint. I agree because I think everybody, I mean, the whole point of, and the reason I find this such an interesting question is that altruism is a very human phenomenon and it, and we can explain it based on what we know about human psychology and biology perfectly well. We don't have to resort to supernatural explanations. And I think it really does create the sense that to do something altruistic means to be somehow on a pedestal or superhuman. And I think that's the wrong, the wrong framing. So do all psychopaths have a small amygdala? And if you have a small amygdala, are you destined to be a psychopath or can you be living life with a small amygdala or even is it possible to have no amygdala and be living an okay life as a nice person? It is. So yes, all of these things um, are, these are great questions. So one of the things I'll say right away is that we don't know exactly what's happening in the amygdala that is leading to the um, differences that we see in people's behavior. There's a lot we don't know. And the amygdala is a complex structure with a lot of different things happening within it. And so probably what we're picking up on when we, when we see differences in the overall volume of the amygdala of people who are very altruistic or highly psychopathic, it's not really the whole amygdala that's involved. It's probably some part of it. And that is contributing to its overall volume. And so the answer, yeah. So all of this is to say people's latent potential is never really knowable based on a brain scan or really anything else. That is so interesting. So I'm hearing two things. The first I find that's really interesting is that you've identified that, yes, 
they're bigger and certain people smaller and some other people. But what you're saying is, is that there's something within the amygdala. So you might have a normal amygdala, but the part that is really making you altruistic might be very large. So taking up your whole amygdala, for example. Exactly. Exactly. The, I mean, I have a book on my bookshelf uh, called, uh, I think it's called The Amygdala. And it's you know, <laughs> this thick because it, I mean, the amygdala is, it's unbelievable given how small it is, how many different functions it serves. And so only one of them is altruism. And so we think there's probably only a, a subpopulations of cells within it that are relevant to altruism. So if the amygdala yeah. is plastic, that means that I could have experiences or have a baby or do something that would change the the properties of my amygdala. Is that true? Absolutely possible. Yeah. Uh, serious trauma can sometimes uh, change the structure of people's amygdala. We know that. And learning in general, you know, anytime you learn mm, things that are important, we know that the the process by which new memories are formed is, results in very small, subtle changes in the structure of the brain. And so it's almost certainly the case that people could become more altruistic over time. But we know that they can. Um, and perhaps that change would be reflected in structural changes in the amygdala. That is data I don't have yet, but maybe I would, I, I very much hope that one day I will. So is that the type of stuff you could study with, for example, the psychopathic kids you work with, which by the way, sounds very important, but also very scary. <laughs> um, I think of the movie, yeah. The Good Son <laughs> with Macaulay Culkin. So, yes. so you yeah. could, could you work with one of these psychopathic children to change the properties of their brain and make them a more altruistic person or are yeah. we just born? so are they born this way? There have been a few studies looking at, well, both studies looking at the development of psychopathy and studies looking at the development of the amygdala, which is not the only structure involved in psychopathy, but it's definitely implicated. Um, and both of them, if you look at big populations, the estimate is that they're about 50% heritable. So that about half of the variation in both amygdala volume and psychopathy is due to genetic factors. And the rest is due to developmental factors, including life experiences of different kinds. So first of all, some children are born at higher risk of psychopathy than others, just like they're born at higher risk of developing autism or schizophrenia or anything else. But nobody is predestined for any particular outcome. You know, for example, if you have an identical twin with schizophrenia, if you're somebody who, who is an identical twin and your identical twin has schizophrenia, even though you have identical genes, your odds of developing schizophrenia are only 50%. And so that's a really good illustration of how there's very few instances of genetic destiny when it comes to any outcome. So yes, there are some children who are born at higher risk of psychopathy, we think because they're born with a relatively fearless temperament. And they're born with something else we don't understand as well, which is just lower social sensitivity to probably sort of lower social reward that you just don't, you somehow don't feel so like emotionally close to people very easily. We don't understand that part at all. I'm actually, this is one of the main questions I'm working on now is trying to, as I think that altruists feel unusually emotionally close to even people they don't know well, not in a weird way, just in a, I, I care about you way. I don't need to know anything about you. I don't need to have known you for a long time. The fact that you're a human being with emotions and you know, desires and goals is enough for me to care about your welfare. Whereas for most people, you kind of have to know somebody well before you really care about their welfare. 
And then for people with psychopathy, they don't, they don't really care about anybody's welfare except their own. They just, they, they just don't. However, that's almost certainly something that can be changed. And I really hope that my work with altruistic populations will help give me answers that will help the psychopathic populations. I, do, I really do view it all as sort of one big set of research questions. Wow. That's super yeah. interesting. And that, I mean, that to me, that's one of the things that, you know, maybe surprisingly, the people I've worked with who are very altruistic, I, it's one of the things I'm most grateful to them for, although the list is long, is that by helping me understand what makes them care so much about other people, we can help figure out how to give a little bit more of that to the people who care the least, which will just alleviate so much suffering in the world if we can figure out how to do it. What's what's your instinct on how we can figure out how to do that? Oh, I have a couple of studies that I'm starting right now. So for any of your listeners, we'll be recruiting again soon for some brain imaging studies. Um, but really, I think what I'm trying to figure out is what it means to love somebody. The, the scientific definition of love is to care about somebody else's welfare for its own sake, not because of how their welfare affects you or or for any other selfish reason. I think everybody feels that way about many others in their own life. I mean, I hope so. You know, you feel you care about your children's welfare for their own sake. You care about, you know, hopefully your spouse's welfare for his own sake. My dog, you know, I care about his welfare because it it just intrinsically matters to me. How does the brain do that? Right? Something in the brain allows us to register another person's fear or joy or pain or whatever as intrinsically subjectively valuable. And I th- there clearly are, um, and this is what's been so fascinating to me. I'm so excited about it. Um, circuits within the amygdala that do that calculation, that that register somebody else's welfare is intrinsically important. And we know this from a couple of rodent studies that have been done recently in rats and mice, which are surprisingly altruistic little creatures. Really? Um, yeah. I'm an animal lover in general. There are very few animals I don't, you know, really appreciate. So what is a, how do you know that you have a good mouse friend that's being an <laughs> altruistic decision <laughs> for your well-being? Yeah. Well, can rats be altruistic for people or mice be altruistic? I don't know about that. That's a good question, but they certainly can <laughs> be for each other. That would be amazing. Unless you're Cinderella or something. Um, <laughs> that's funny you say that. Cause when I was little, I, I kind of thought I was snow white. I felt like if I would go to the forest, all the animals would come to me. Like that was how I pictured. Uh, that sounds like me. There was a point last summer, it was mid pandemic when I think in our household, we had a dog, two cats, three chickens, and a turtle. And I was like, I am pretty close to living my childhood dream. <laughs> I need is like a bluebird or something on my shoulder and I'll be safe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a pretty hardcore animal lover. Yes. So what we know is that you can conduct research studies with rats and mice where you teach them a, like a little task where they have the opportunity to choose, you know, one button or one lever that will give them a reward and another button or another level that will give them a reward in addition to another rat. Like they, they know that they're the guy in the other cage will also get a reward. There's no, like, why would they bother picking the outcome where their buddy gets a reward also, right? Unless somehow they valued that guy's uh, welfare. And there's other ways that you can even more sort of subtly probe whether it's the actually the other rats welfare they care about but if the other box is empty you know I, i'm delivering two pellets one to myself and one to an empty box they won't pick it but if they know they're delivering a pellet to themselves and a pellet to their friend they'll prefer that option over just a pellet to themselves i i don't see a clear way to interpret that other than it's better that my buddy gets a gets a pellet other than just me 
Um, and what's interesting is if it's a buddy that they know, they'll be more likely to choose it than if it's a stranger. And I mean, it's it's really not that different from people in some ways. In any case, if you measure activity, humanely, uh, various cell populations in their brains, you can see that it, it seems to be that the amygdala is encoding the value of that pellet for the buddy and then sending that information forward to the, the frontal cortex of the rat, which then actually sort of performs the choice. So there seem to be like truly altruistic little cells within the amygdala that can drive choices to help others. So I don't know. I find it quite a thrilling time to be doing this research because it feels like we're getting really close to the answers. Can't wait to hear what comes next for your research. Is there anything else we found that donors have in common across the board? Um, actually, there's a paper that was just accepted after a very, very long review period. It, it, so we, we collected this data a little while ago, and perhaps some of your uh, guests or listeners have, were actually participants in the study. And if that's the case, I, I express my undying gratitude. It, this is a study where we had people make the similar same kind of decisions where you have an amount of money you can keep for yourself or you can split some other amount with yourself and another person. And this is this is a task called the social discounting task. We've done it in lots of studies now, and we find very consistent results that um, people who have given a kidney to strangers are more likely to choose to share, regardless of who the other person in question is. And we make it real money. We, you know, we say, and in, re- in reality, we're going to we'll pick one of your choices at random, and we will um, dispense a, a portion of this amount to you and whoever else you picked, or just to you if you picked just yourself. Basically. What we think that means, and we have uh, an imaging study under review now too, looking at this, but what we think it means is that, again, people who are more altruistic just intrinsically value other people's outcomes more. And so the idea of somebody else getting a little windfall is just intrinsically desirable and good. And so it makes perfect sense that you would rather share with somebody else rather than keep everything for yourself. Most people are like, of course, money coming to me, it just is intrinsically valuable. Well, the more altruistic you are, the more you think that money being you know, given to somebody else has that same sense of intrinsic value and sort of pleasure, I guess you would say. And that uh, pattern is one that we found extends to all kinds of altruistic populations. So we tested in this most recent study, not just uh, kidney donors, but also liver donors, bone marrow donors, heroic rescuers. So we had a population of people who saved people from fires and drowning and things. And also humanitarian aid workers who work for the organization Doctors Without Borders. And all of these populations are distinguished from a, a typical adult by the fact that they are much more likely to value even distant others' welfare more than people, uh, than the average person does. And it's very high levels of what's called honesty, humility, you know, being unusually unlikely to exploit other people or to want to exploit other people. And you could argue even a willingness to be voluntarily, I guess you could say exploited by them, right? I'm, I'm willing to just give you something for nothing because your welfare matters to me so much. Um, and, you know, I, I say exploit and with air quotes because, and I guess the listeners can't hear my air quotes because uh, it, to me, it's, it's voluntary exploitation is really just another word for altruism. So in my mind, it's a good thing. And so that seems to be uh, a really consistent difference between altruists and other adults is uh, this particular honesty, humility, personality trait. So do you think that your work has made you more empathetic? I think it has made me more 
you know, I really, I'm a, I, I do believe in this idea of a continuum and I don't think that I'm at the maximum end of the, of the caring continuum by any means. I think I'm, I'm a pretty empathic person. Like I really, it really does bother me to see other people who are upset or distressed, but I think like a lot of people where I've, when I fail to be sufficiently empathic, it's because I'm being judgmental because I'm thinking of somebody else as somehow not the right kind of person. And I, I think that's very human. You know, it's, it's just a common, it's a common phenomenon. And I think, unfortunately, the very polarized environment we're in right now, it's even more common. And I, and, but it, you know, world history shows you countless examples of people who have done terrible things to other people or who have withheld help from other people, you know, because they saw that person as somehow not sufficiently deserving. And so I would say that that's what's changed the most about me from having worked with altruists is, is having a little bit more of that quality is, is, is being more likely to think of everybody as potentially deserving as, as potentially, you know, having just some goodness in them and, and deserving to be given the benefit of the doubt. I'm grateful for that. That's awesome. There's so much being done in the world of kidney donation advocacy. And I wonder how do you appeal to this audience of people with enlarged amygdalas for the purpose of sharing the living donation opportunity. If I know people with large amygdalas are more likely to donate an organ, how can we leverage what we've learned from your studies to find more living donors? Given that sort of uh, brain scans at large population levels are probably infeasible, (laughs) but luckily we don't need that. I mean, the best predictor of, of future behavior is past behavior for anything, you know, whether you're looking at antisocial behavior or altruism. What I would do if it were up to me is look for people who've already donated other things and who have really been gratified by that experience. So repeat blood donors, mm-hmm. Man, almost every altruistic kidney donor I've worked with is also a repeat blood donor, plasma donor, marrow donor, almost all of them are on the marrow registry. Mm-hmm. And so I think it would be great if these various sort of tissue and organ donation organizations could sort of work together when share it comes their to contact ba- database essentially is what you're Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. I'm sh- I you know, I I don't think it's unlikely that that somebody who's had the experience of donating marrow and saving a life that way and has thought, "Oh my god, like this was I mean, cuz how many kidney donors have I spoken to who've said if I have if I had another kidney to give, I would give it. If I had 10 more kidneys to give, I would give them." You know, that's a that's a refrain I've heard over and over again. And so you know, you can do that with marrow, although it's very unlikely you'd be asked. And I think this is one reason people donate blood a lot who find it gratifying is they're like, you know, why would I not do this if I could do it over and over again? And maybe you can only donate blood or marrow so many times, but this is something that really is consistent with your own values. Kidney might be something you'd be willing to consider as well, especially if you had the chance to talk to other people who'd done it and said, yeah, it was a totally feasible thing. And I'm grateful I did it. That's a good answer. Thank you. Of course. So one last question. In our in our pre-interview call, you said that the world is becoming a better and humane place. Can you explain how this is true? Yeah. And I know it seems a little paradoxical. Yeah. If you look at the data, it's pretty clear that altruism is promoted by flourishing. If you look over time within a given region, or if you look around the world across different regions, you see the most consistent altruistic behavior where people report a high sense of well-being. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean having a ton of money. It just means feeling good about where your life is, you know, and that tends to go along with things like 
having gratitude for the good things that have come your way, feeling connected to others around you, having a high level of trust, feeling a sense of sort of purpose in life. All not it's not necessarily like, oh, I feel so happy right now. It's more just feeling like grateful and like you're living a good life that you are satisfied with. Like I'm picturing the Netherlands when you say that. Correct. Yes. The and interestingly, these the Nordic countries are also the most altruistic in the world. And we have recent data on this. And it doesn't matter how you measure altruism. It could be kidney donation, marrow donation, blood donation, volunteering, helping strangers, charitable donations, being kind to animals. All of these things tend to be promoted by flourishing. And so the good thing is that slowly and non-linearly and imperfectly, you know, all the people out there working so hard to reduce poverty and improve living conditions and, and places all over the world, in every country in the world, of course, there are people whose whose lives could be made better. And it's working over time. You know, poverty has been massively reduced and and health and longevity and education and all of these things that contribute to high levels of well-being have been increasing all over the world. And so what you see is that altruism is also increasing as well-being increases, which is wonderful. Why don't we see it? Well, because the information ecosystem we're in is not, we're not getting a random sampling of human behavior from our sources of information. If you force them to focus on the people that they personally know and ask them, are the interactions you have with real live human beings generally pretty good? For the most part, they'll say yes. I think almost everybody would say of the 10 interactions you had most recently with real human beings in the world, were they positive, pro-social? Almost invariably, the answer is yes. However, we get a lot of our information about other people from not our own interactions, but of course, these vicarious sources, the news, and then also social media, where we're interacting with avatars who are who knows where and who knows who. And unfortunately, the incentives in both the, certainly the US news media, way worse than other countries, interestingly, and then also social media is to present us with the the worst possible portrait of human nature, right? Narcissists, we know, rise to the top of social media. Their posts tend to get the most traction and they end up seeming to be more common than they are. And then the, the, for whatever reason, well, we know the reasons, the U.S., especially, especially national media, is incentivized to feed us the, the worst stories they can find, like the worst things that people do to each other. And in a world of, what is it, 8 billion people now, you can definitely find people doing terrible things, like they're out there, but they're not the norm. And they're actually getting less common. But at, even as altruism is getting more common, and we have the data to show that that's true, the depictions of how people are is getting worse in the U.S. media. And so we're seeing trust in others going down and beliefs about the the sort of goodness of other people going down, which is a real shame. It really, really, really bothers me because eventually that's going to catch up with us, right? As trust dwindles and cynicism increases, eventually that is going to make people actually worse. So I really think it's important to stop this cycle. And I think one of the best ways to do that is making sure people are aware of just how much goodness there is in the world and, and not to ignore it when it's right in front of them. And because we just need to be as as the same as other countries. It's for some reason, the US in particular has a really negative bias when it comes to news and it's creating a real, and what's interesting is the US used to be the most trusting country in the world, very, very high levels of interpersonal trust. And those levels have been dropping a lot. And I, I think it has to be a combination of the the relentless negative spin. I mean, on everything. Like what's amazing is like even like COVID outcomes, for example, you can see that when COVID outcomes started increasing, you know, I'm sorry, improving, fewer people dying, more people getting vaccinated. I mean, yeah, we have a long way to go, but like they have legitimately been improving. 
And you would see other countries' news media roughly matching like how bad things were. Like when things were getting really bad, they say, okay, they're really bad. When they're getting better, they're like, okay, they're getting better. In the US news, you can just see, like no matter what the actual trend is, the headlines give you the worst possible spin right. on it. And I just, it drives me bananas because it, it makes people cynical. Um, and cynicism is the enemy of altruism. Mm. Um, and so I think we need to come up with a better way to highlight problems that need fixing without uh, papering over like the real good that happens in the world. It all needs highlighting. It does. Any final thoughts today, Abby? No, no, this has been a great uh, conversation. I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, me too. I, I just, I love your work so much and I'm, I'm grateful that there's people out there studying donors because there really isn't a ton of research out there and living donors. So thank you for being the person leading that effort. I feel endlessly grateful that I had the good fortune to, in some ways, stumble into doing this line of research. I feel like it's, I've, I've really been, I just feel like the luckiest person in the world that um, I get to do this, this kind of research and, and meet so many wonderful people by doing it. Well, keep up the great work and I hope to have you again as a guest in the future, hear what you're up to. Thank you so much. I'd be glad to come back. Thanks, Abby. Wasn't that an amazing tour of our brains? If you want to learn more about Abby's work, please check out my show notes where I have a link to her book, some of her publications, and the 60 Minutes episode she referred to, which is really fantastic. Next month, we're actually going to continue our conversation about altruism with Dylan Matthews from Vox. He's a non-directed kidney donor who will introduce us to the world of something called effective altruism. Effective altruism is a philosophical and social movement that advocates using evidence and reason to figure out how to benefit others as much as possible. It's about figuring out how to do the most good because who wants to do just kind of good when we can be doing good better? Donor Diaries is produced by Rob Lee and Maitree River Productions. If you love this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and rate it so you can get more. I'm your host, Lori Lee. Thanks so much for joining me today.